So over the course of the summer, we are going to ask and hopefully answer a number of questions, some of them general in nature, some of them very concrete, very specific in nature about the church. And I suspect that in doing that, this sermon series is going to be a bit more polemical, uh, which is to say a bit more critical, a bit more argumentative than are a lot of our series, because I don't really know how you can ask and answer those questions without some degree of compare and contrast uh, within the church, outside of the church, even self-critique as we work our way through this. So be aware of that as we, as we confront it throughout this series. But I, I want to articulate a danger at this, at, even at this juncture, at this very point, and it is this, that sometimes we Protestants, and I think even within the framework of we Protestants, especially we Reformed Protestants, are very happy both with asking questions and then with answering them as precisely and clearly as we possibly can. We like definition, we like explanation, we like being able to provide a reason and a defense for what we do and what we believe. That is important to us. And I hope that in this series we are going to be able to do just that. I hope that we will be able to ask a question, answer the question, and explain the answer to that question. Why do you do this? Well, let me explain to you why we do this. But I don't want that to be the only thing. I hope it's not the only thing that happens to us. I hope that over the course of the summer that the Lord will help us to grow in our understanding of what the church is and what the church does and the component parts, but also at the same time in our love for her, in our ability to cherish her. The groom loves cherishes his bride. And as we come to love and cherish the church, we are loving that which Jesus loves. We are loving the apple of his eye, and so we are imitating our Lord and Jesus Christ, both as we understand her, serve in her, and as we love her. The question of today, then, has to do with love, our love for God, and our love for other people. We've been talking about the soul. In essence, we have been talking about Christian spirituality and our growth and our relationship with God, our soul in relationship with God. The question today is where do we go to grow in and express that love of which we have spoken now for several months? What is the place of the church in the development of our soul, in the development of our spiritual lives. And the way that I'm going to address it is more poetically and metaphorically today than I am through propositional statements supported by various places in Scripture. Now, the propositional statements are there. They are in your bulletin today. We confess them together, 
The Westminster Confession of Faith is stating what we believe about the church. And you can take the time to look up the references that are contained there as an explanation of what we believe about the church. Likewise, at the end of the service in your bulletin today, uh, at the end of that section where the service is, you will find a section out of the Belgic Confession, which is also a terrific statement about the church set forth very clearly and very precisely. But there is some benefit in considering things by way of metaphor. It helps us to see and to understand in a way that if I just state point after point after point about the church, it might get lost. And so I hope to add color to our understanding of the church by using the metaphor that is contained here within the Song of Songs. The groom describes his bride, his beloved, as a garden. And in describing her as a garden, he goes on to describe various parts, various things that you would find in a garden. Beautiful trees and fruit coming from different places and spices that are grown and raised and cultivated in this garden. Throughout the passage that I read for us, and I'm going to refer to it a couple of times here, the, pro the progress goes from, this is, she is a garden. It is her garden, uh, and he calls it your garden. And we move on in the passage to the point where her garden becomes his garden at her invitation. Let my beloved come to his garden. You see the shift there? He's been calling it your garden. And it is her garden right up to the point where she says, you come to your garden. It belongs to you. And uh, he says, I came to my garden. So he accepts, he owns that which she has in love given to him and entrusted to them, and it becomes then together their garden. It is within this garden, within the confines of this garden, that they express their love for one another, that they celebrate their love for one another. The word that is used for garden in the Song of uh, Solomon here uh, is the same word that is used, for example, in the description of the Garden of Eden. And understanding it is important for us. The idea of the word is something that is enclosed a special place in the midst of other things. There is garden and there is not garden. The, uh, the noun garden comes from a verb, and the verb essentially means to protect, to defend, to hedge in. In the Greek uh, version of the, the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word that is translated, or uh, used, I should say, to describe the Garden of Eden is the word, it's translator, it's, it's paradise, okay? It's just, it, it sounds exactly the same in Greek. Actually, it sounds exactly the same in Hebrew. It's in your Hebrew Bible as well, not in this, not in Song of Solomon. Uh, it, actually, it is, but it's just a little bit later. If you, if you want to know, it's where it says orchard in the passage that I just read for you. That's paradise. Uh, 
and it's a borrowed word. It's, it's probably a Persian word that is used to describe uh, the gardens. It is paradise. So you've got the paradise of Eden, or Jesus saying, today you will be with me in paradise. And this idea of paradise, as it is a borrowed term, is something that is walled in, something that is hedged in, that has protection and definition to it. It is an enclosed garden park, a place of protected life. I, I trust that all of us throughout travels, you know, whether it's Longwood Gardens or some other gardens, that all of us at some point have been in gardens and know this idea of, of a beautiful garden in which life flourishes, in which it is preserved, but not just preserved in a static kind of way, but preserved and thriving life inside of this garden. And so in the middle of the garden are things that you would expect to find in the garden. There are the trees and there are the flowers. And there's one other thing that is indispensable to life in the middle of a garden. Namely, there is water in the middle of a garden. And so you have it in Eden. In Eden, you've got a spring flowing up, a river that comes out of the middle of it that branches off into four other rivers. And so it is within the Song of Songs. A spring, this is in verse 12, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. There is in this garden water, if you go down to verse 15, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. So in Eden, so in the Song of Solomon, and so at the very end of your Bible, unsurprisingly, is the description of the new heavens and the new earth. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street. And on either side of the street is the tree of life, and it gives forth fruit in its season. The image of thriving life. And let me give you one more biblical parallel to this as well. So, so right now what, what we've got established is we've got the Garden of Eden. We've got the Song of Solomon Garden. We've got the new heavens and the new earth. Put in the middle of that, the temple. And in the temple, what you have are carvings and embroidery throughout the temple of trees and fruits and all around and throughout the temple are various basins of water, some representing the seas that are there. It's the same exact idea, just repeated in all of the places, this paradise. And here is the simple lesson for us today. Throughout history, throughout the history of humanity, God has created spaces defined, walled, protected, special places wherein his people are to flourish. They're not prison cells, keeping people in, keeping people from life. They're gardens with walls of protection, 
where life is supposed to take place. Sometimes God creates them physically, and other times he creates these borders spiritually. The church, the visible, local church, is that space. In the Old Testament, that was the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel had borders, boundaries around the nation of Israel, and they were defended. The king with his armies defended those border borders. And you had the temple in the midst of Jerusalem, and the city of Jerusalem had a wall. And then you go into the temple, and within the temple there are all sorts of walls and divisions that exist within there. The law is part of the defining of the, law, of the wall for the people of Israel. All of it defines the space of Israel, but no longer. No longer. The space now defined in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, is a multinational space, and it is a multi-ethnic space. By the way, I'm talking a lot about walls here. Some of you may have in mind, wait a minute, what about in Ephesians where Paul, Paul talks about walls being torn down? I'm going to be talking about walls being built up. The idea that Paul is referring to there is that which separated Jews and Gentiles. That wall has been removed. But that's not to say there are no borders and no boundaries that exist within the church. The church, unlike Israel, because it doesn't have those boundaries that are guarded by armies, is thus more mobile and it is more free than Israel ever was. It is able to travel throughout the world. God has designed the church with incredible simplicity. Simple means have been entrusted to the church and designated as powerful by God, and they can be transported from culture to culture, from context to context, from race to race. And they are simple things. The church is free, but she is not borderless. She is enclosed. Now, there's something wonderfully inviting about a garden. There's something that calls you when you know that a garden is on the other side. Something invites you there. But there is around a garden some type of privacy, some type of hedge, some type of wall that keeps you from being there. And you know as a person, whether you were in the garden or whether you were outside the garden, you know. You're on one side of the wall, or you're on the other side of the wall. And the same is true for the church and membership in the church. You know whether you are in or out, and you are one or the other. The fact that the boundary isn't physical does not mean the boundary is not clear. So let's look at this from the perspective of the Song of Solomon. Can I come in or not is a question. A garden locked is my sister and my bride. There's water there, right? But it is a spring locked. It is a fountain that is sealed. And it is sealed until she invites. She allows the groom to come in to this garden. 
Now, the other gardens that I've mentioned are similar to this garden. The other gardens have gates, and they have gatekeepers, and they have keys, and they have locks, and some have the key, and some don't have the key, and it, with the key can be opened or shut. And there are ways by which those gates, those entry points, are guarded, sometimes by flaming swords, sometimes by armies who guard the way into a particular place or a particular country. Sometimes they are guarded spiritually. The gates of the church are guarded spiritually with the preaching of the Word of God. Now, I want to give you a quick example of the way this works in the church, and we'll come back to it because I'll preach on the sacraments in a, in a couple of weeks' time. When we have the Lord's Supper, you hear me give an explanation of the Supper based on the Word. And then what you hear me do is extend an invitation to participate in the Supper, but as I extend that invitation to participate, there is at the same time a warning that is given. It is not, it is not a warning that I'm making up, it is a warning from Scripture so that people participate in the Supper who know this is my garden. And people don't participate in the supper who are guests, who are not yet part of that garden. Now, that's not about our church individually. That's about the visible church more broadly defined than us. But that process by which I give a warning and say, examine yourselves, is what we call fencing the table. It is putting up a fence and saying, you have to be aware of the borders of what we're talking about right now to decide whether or not to partake of this type, uh, this table. Now, here's the reality. We live in a time of great fluidity and porousness in borders. Now, <laughs> I am making no political statement right now, okay? Just, just don't hear it that way. I am not, that is not in mind at all. But God has created a garden. God has created the garden of marriage wherein especially the physical, but the, all the other stuff that goes along with that, the, the, the beautiful union of two souls that takes place, God has created the garden of marriage wherein the husband and wife flourish. And in Genesis chapter 3, an assault on the gates and the borders began. And it hasn't let up since. And it continues to our day. And the walls of marriage have been breached. They've been breached, and people are running through them doing all sorts of things. Now, I don't want to go too far on the marriage side of this because I'm using that as a metaphor for the church, but you can fill it in as you would like. The definitions and purposes and structures of marriage have been so distorted that if, if someone were to be from the outside and say, give me a report on the state of marriage, it would be akin to Nehemiah sending people over to Jerusalem to get a report on the state of the walls of Jerusalem. 
right? Okay, remember that picture? If you're biblically, we'll be preaching on Nehemiah in the evenings during the summer. So if this is a mystery right now, give it a little bit of time, this will fill out as well. But Nehemiah wants to hear, how are the walls around Jerusalem? Because that's an important point, right? You've got to have walls. That's the point. You flourish within, within the walls. And the report he gets back would sound like the report on marriage. The remnant who survive the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. Less noticeable to us less noticeable to us, but equally, if not more, disastrous, is that the ancient boundaries which have defined the church and protected her as a place of spiritual flourishing for the people of God, they have been similarly moved, torn down, displaced, so that the church has become marginalized in our spiritual lives. The church has become simply one more option, one more item on the supermarket shelf of spirituality. Take a little bit of church with a little bit of something else and we'll grow in our spirituality. We did it to ourselves. We did it to ourselves. We got bored. We got fidgety as a church. Yeah, this is going to happen, isn't it? All right, we'll see. You know what? Norm, I'm not even going to try this. I want to come right back to this. Would you do me a favor? Would you play for us 347, The Church is One Foundation, uh, we'll stand up and we'll sing that. That's a nice long hymn. Hopefully we'll let this pass on by, slide on by and do its thing. And then I'll come back, right back to this point uh, in the sermon, I think is the best way to be able to handle this. So open up your hymn books for a second. Sorry about this, folks. Outside of my, of our control. Turn, uh, turn with me to 347 and let's stand up. And Norm, you can go ahead and uh, intro us and then we'll sing together.
So where I was is talking about the marginalization of the church, the moving of the boundaries of the church, and the statement that I made was that we did this to ourselves. The church got bored and we became fidgety and we feared that as the culture was moving along, doing all sorts of exciting things, becoming a faster-paced culture, that we had to do something, something to try and keep from becoming irrelevant in the world. And so we started tinkering with the boundaries. And we started moving things around within the church. And sermons got shorter. And prayers shrank in the church. And music changed. And pastors started coming in to worship services on zip lines and motorcycles and dressed up in Superman capes. You just have to look it on YouTube, it's there. And prayer requests have been taped or sticky noted to beach balls and popped around the congregation. Pull off a prayer request as it comes around and the church becomes increasingly trivialized. Youth groups become entertainment centers and alternatives to the church spring up. They are parachurch organizations and they seek to fill in gaps in the life and the ministry of the church to focus on a particular group that is not being reached by the church. And small groups abound and personal discipleship becomes the way of discipleship. And Christian schools are developed. And when people can't afford Christian schools or think that parenting or that, that education becomes their responsibility, then homeschooling starts and co-ops develop in homeschooling. There's conferences and there's camps and there's podcasts and personal devotions and all of those things become the heartbeat of Christian spirituality. And the church gathered for worship on Sundays at an inconvenient time that interrupts the day to pray and to hear the word preached by someone who has been called, elected, and ordained to a particular office who also does something like administering the sacraments and who, with the other elders of the church, actually exercises authority in shepherding the members of the congregation. How quaint. How antiquated. How oppressive. How boring. How formal. How slow can that possibly be? Can you be serious? What makes you think that this means anything? I know. I was one of them. I was 22 years old, and I was convinced, having cut my teeth in parachurch ministry, maybe four years after I became a believer, I became a member of a PCA church. But having cut my teeth and sank my spirituality into the life of the parachurch, I was convinced, Lauren and I were married, that I had the answers 
for the local church. I knew what needed to be done, and two ruling elders from this church come over to the house, and they sit down, and I give them the plan. This is the way to revitalize the church. We've got to sing these songs. We've got to circle up the chairs. It was a church plant. We've got to have more interactive sermons. This is what we've got to do. I know. I fidgeted. I tinkered. I laughed at exactly what we're doing now. I mocked it. And these two men, God bless them, I will say their names, Jim Haber and Fred Cool. Fred cool has been here and worshiped with us a number of times. These two men, not literally, but metaphorically, sat in our living room, and, and, and they, 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 no, they actually sat, metaphorically, they patted me on the head. Good boy. <laughs> Foolish boy. We know something you don't know, and you need to be patient. We know that this church that has been handed to us, that we're handing to you, we know that this is something that is given to us by God. We know that it is something that is not against you, but that is actually for you and for your sake. We've got to not listen to you and your ideas for how to improve it and how to make it more jazzy. Let's get you to seminary, is what they said. That's compressing a little bit of time. Gatekeepers in the house of God. That's what they were. Gatekeepers in the house of God, preserving and defending something that was precious, but I couldn't see it. I didn't know it. I was just mad. I don't know why they didn't listen. They didn't convince me in one setting. I was convinced that they were goofy, old. They were in their 30s, after all. That's... That was, that was outrageously old. We're talking about walls, borders. But hear this. Jesus said, I am the door. In Revelation, he says, I have set before you an open door. I have keys. And the door is open. It is set before you open. Come in. Jesus invites people into the life of the church. And when they come into the church, what they find in the church is what you find when you go into marriage, and that is to say, intimacy, security. Why? Because in the church is where Jesus is. Jesus is the door in that wall, the gate of that wall, and you come in and you meet with Jesus. It is where he is through the Spirit, working through the Word. That is where Jesus has committed himself to be in and amongst the lampstands. You find intimacy with God in your spiritual life in the church because that's what God has decreed in the exact same way that it has decreed marriage. Objection. It is popular to say amongst people who are educated, okay? Educated in the church, I mean. I don't mean educated in the world. Educated in the church. That Well, the word church in Scripture just really refers to people. It's talking about believers. Wherever believers are, there is the church. It's not organized. It's not defined. It is invisible. It is everyone who believes. So there's, there's this idea of the visible church is an 
it is an invention. And to be sure, we believe in the invisible church. You confessed it. I hope you confessed it with integrity. But we read it from the Westminster Confession of Faith that we believe in the invisible church. But the other part of that confession, the thing which it does not exclude, is the reality of the visible church. The invisible church finds its expression in this organization and this body, which we call the visible church, to whom God has entrusted the ministry, ordinances, and oracles for the perfecting and the gathering of his people. To this body, to this organization, and I know that that word sounds weird to say about the church, to this organization, God has entrusted exactly those things. If that's confusing to you, keep coming. Keep coming this summer, and we'll try and clarify it as we move along. God set up and established marriage by covenant. Your husband, your wife is your spouse by covenant. It is exclusive. It is bounded. It is defined. The edges of it are not fuzzy. Jesus established his church by covenant. The edges of the church are not fuzzy. What membership means is not fuzzy. It seems fuzzy to people. Why do you have to have church membership? Why does somebody have to belong to a church? It's not fuzzy. It only seems that way because it keeps whispering to you, and we ourselves have moved the boundaries so that it seems fuzzy to us. This place is the center of your spiritual formation. We minimize it to our peril. Making this bride your priority brings you in line with what Jesus loves. And you make this bride your priority, and you will be blessed. You will be blessed. That is exactly what the call to worship said today. Look back at it. There's a phrase that is popular in culture. I don't want to use it from the pulpit. The idea is of having a friendship and getting a little bit more out of the friendship than typical friendship brings. Got the phrase in your mind, right? You got it. Many people treat the church in that exact same way. I'd like to have the, the uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to not use words here, sorry. I'd like to have the blessings of being part of the church, but I want to keep one foot in, one foot out. I want to keep my options open. I'd like to not be confined. I don't want to be constrained. Listen, what God says to you is, you want to flourish? In this sense, be confined, be constrained. Get into this place of flourishing. It is the garden I've established. All right, I got to say two confessions as I close this thing up here today. Two confessions. First of all, I am thankful and indebted to many of the very things outside of the church, the entities that I mentioned before. I am indebted to them for my own salvation. I am indebted to them for other things in my life, and I appreciate them insofar as they go. But when they try to become the church or to usurp 
the priorities that belong to the church, when they worship and do all of the things of worship and say, this is where you're going to be fed, or when they make their priority or one of their priorities to be your spiritual formation, I say right at that point, you've crossed the line because God has created the church for that. You do the thing that you're entrusted to do, whatever that might be, whatever you've gathered yourself together, but don't usurp the church because you are kicking your legs out from underneath of you whether you know it or not. These other entities, they're fine, but they're outside the wall. They're the people of God going outside the garden, perhaps, and doing things. But they are feeding from stuff, fruit that is hanging over the walls that is growing inside of the garden, from the bees that are pollinating the flowers, sometimes coming out and drifting out in this way and that way. And if you lose this, this local church, the body of Christ locally gathered, those things will go away. They will go away. Young people, you have to hear this. You have to hear it. You think that you can have the spirituality without this stodgy church. And what I'm saying in a nutshell is you need this stodgy church. You won't always think it's stodgy. I get it now. You won't always think that. Those other things are possible because of this thing. This is the heart. Those other things are some nice expressions. Confession one, I'm indebted. Confession two, the church is a train wreck. It is a complete, utter, disaster train wreck. When I wanted us to sing that third verse of the church's one foundation because of the train wreck that is described in what we just sang. We've been rent asunder Throughout the history of being the church, we've been rent asunder. We've been rent asunder by uh, heresies. We've been rent asunder by just divisions that exist within the church. I know it's a train wreck. I'm a part of the wreck. And simply by virtue of the position that God's called me to serve in this church, I'm like a first responder to train wrecks. I've been in probably more train wrecks than you've been in. I've been up close and personal with train wrecks that are just a mess. Enough things that you go, good grief, there has to be a better option than the local church. Let's figure out some other way to do this so that we don't do this stuff over and over again. <sighs> Brothers and sisters, uh, there are lots of marriages that are train wrecks, and churches can be brutal. I am under no illusions. I'm not an idealist. I'm under no conceptual illusions that we are somehow intrinsically beautiful as the bride of Christ. That we are not. That we certainly are not. But we remain, brothers and sisters, the betrothed, the beloved, the forgiven community, and our groom, the Lord Jesus, he will not abandon his bride, the church. He has covenantally committed himself to her. He has shed his blood for her, and he has promised through the working of his spirit that he will, in fact, purify us. 
He will make us holy. He will make us without spot, without blemish, so that when he gathers us up to himself in the new heavens and the new earth, we will not spoil that garden, but we will enjoy it. And in that garden, we will flourish, enjoying perfect communion with God in the paradise of God forever and ever. The church is a garden established for your spiritual flourishing.